Well, week three of the gospel according to John, we're going to be in John chapter two today, verses 12 through 25. I don't know that uh, I'll necessarily hit every single verse, but that's kind of the entirety of the story. So I figured I'd read it all to you just so we kind of had the full picture of what took place. But starting in verse 12, it says, after this, he, meaning Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. In verse 18, it says, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the, di the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so there's a lot to really unpack in this passage, you could really split it up into two sermons. I chose not to do that because I want to look at something very specific today. And that's mainly how Jesus looked at the church and their role in religion, right? Their role in the way, their role in following God. What we witness in this passage is a shift in Jesus' ministry. He leaves Nazareth for Capernaum. His brother and mother and brothers, it says, go with him, but eventually they return home and he stays. And so it's kind of like this transition period for Jesus that signifies that his ministry is really getting ready to pick up. And man, does it uh, pick up in a, a really big way. It just escalates rather quickly, so to speak. Uh, in this passage, we see a unique and different side of Jesus only recorded um, in the other gospels. Uh, and, and the reason I say it that way is because in the other three gospels, uh, this happening is a separate happening, right? So you see this similar story in the other three gospels, but it actually happens right before uh, Jesus' death, right? Uh, here, it kind of kicks off his ministry. So theologians have uh, kind of figured out that there were two separate instances, one that really started his ministry and one that really ended. And so John was offering this different perspective of the beginning of his ministry. I think that what's really special about this passage is it shows us that as people, righteous anger is possible, right? And I think that that's important. We, we, I've talked about that a different time when looking at this passage. It's not really going to be a focus of today, but righteous anger is possible, and I want to mention that. It's okay for us to be upset sometimes. Uh, sometimes there's very good reasons to be upset, and we can handle anger uh, still in a godly way without sin. And, and Jesus um, showed that, that that is quite possible. But he also signifies in this passage what I think, uh, again, I, like I said before, in my mind, is what the focus of the church should be, as well as the importance of ensuring that we maintain our focus on the right things. 
Jesus, or John records Jesus' first temple cleansing, which again, like I said, really kicks off that ministry. And the other three, kind of the uh, temple cleansing that really kicked off the beginning of the end for him. Uh, but really, if we look at this first one, this first temple cleansing, it was really kind of the beginning of it, <laughs> the end for Jesus as well, because it really started to get the religious teachers uh, to a place where they're like, yeah, we got to watch out for this guy. We're not so sure that our focus and his focus is the same thing. Their focus, again, if you remember from a sermon series we did, I don't know, months ago, was kind of on maintaining their power and authority and influence where his was on bringing and doing the will of God. And so I want to take a look just real quick back at John 2, 13, which states when it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's a really short verse. What's so important about that? Well, I think that it shows us for one that uh, customs and traditions aren't a bad thing. Okay, traditions aren't a bad thing. Uh, Jesus is following a Jewish custom, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. It was celebrated in reminder of what God had done for the Jews uh, in delivering them from Egypt. Okay, traditions and customs, they exist for a reason. And mostly that reason is because they have been successful right? We take part in a religion, in a faith that has been around for thousands of years, that has continued to last through changes in decade after decade, that has lasted through changes in political climates and social unrest. Uh, we serve this uh, eternal God as part of this just completely long-lasting tradition. And Traditions are kind of what have carried us to this point of doing things the way that we have really always done them. But the church, I think, has a real problem sometimes in that we like to reinvent the wheel just to do so. We just want to be different. We're going to be different because other churches aren't doing this, and so we can do it, and now we could say we're different, right? We're, we're going to change the way uh, things happen. We want to be hip. We want to be cool. We want the kids to like us, the youths. To, to support our, I'm sorry, <laughs> to support us, right? We, we want to maintain relevance. We want to continue to be relevant. Uh, but as we're going to see today, all we really need to be relevant is God and the message that we have really always had as Christianity and as Christians, right? So there's a, there's a large portion of church today that says, well, the church has always done it this way. So in order to stay relevant, in order for people to continue to follow the way that we think uh, they should in order to, to live the lives we want them to live, we're going to have to change it to make it more palatable. We're going to have to, to really uh, move things around. We're going to be unique. We're going to be unique. That's really a word. What, what are we doing that's unique? What are we doing? What are we offering that no one else is offering? And it's kind of like, do you have a different Jesus than, than we have? You serve a different God than we do? What, what exactly is it that you're offering that we don't have. And so you see a lot of these memes out on Facebook. I just uh, typed like church, what did I type in? Like church angst memes. And it was a lot of the feeling cute ones. Feeling cute might move the organ later. Like, you know, feeling cute might uh, hide Phil's keyboard. Uh, feeling cute threw all the uh, bulletins away, that type of thing, right? Like we look at those things and, and when I see stuff like that, I think to myself, yeah, that's not really eternally important, right? Like those are traditions that we've built with inside of our church. We've had the organ. We always had, we got the bulletins. And we're not going to do that stuff because other churches do it. And it's, to me, it's like, okay, like they have their organ. We have our keyboard. 
They have their bulletins. Things are on our phone, right? Like that's not eternally important things. That's not what I'm talking about today. But what I am talking about is when we decide to shift traditions in the way that scripture teaches us that we should live, right? We are uh, going to, um, you know, scripture makes it pretty clear, for instance, that uh, homosexuality is a sin, right? But culture today wants us to flip that on its head. It just does. And so we're going to change our stance on that because, well, it's more palatable, okay? It's more palatable. Or um, we're going to kind of change the stance we have on divorce, right? Um, hear me out on this because I come from a, a, a divorced home. Uh, I understand that occasionally, um, believe it or not, I know this is rare for you to probably hear a pastor say, occasionally divorce is the answer. Um, it's just, it puts people in a safer environment. It puts everybody in a, in a better home. And so I'm not one of those guys that says, don't get divorced for any reason, right? But we also have kind of flipped that on its head where these days it's too flippant, right? Like we were in love, but then we fell out of love. Things were okay, but now we've hit a bump in the road and we've just decided to amicably separate and part our different ways. And it's like, yeah, that's not really what it's about. We've got to fight for our marriages, right? We took vows to, to, go through this in sickness and health for, for better or worse. And, and again, there are occasions where, uh, like I said, divorce is the answer, but we've got to, to be able as a church to stand for something. I think we can all agree with that. It's one of those things like if you don't stand for something, you really will fall for anything. And if we're always changing our belief system, if we're always uh, restructuring the way that we teach people about the word of God, what exactly is the worth of our teaching? Right? What exactly is the worth of our teaching if it's not this teaching that has lasted thousands of years? Why do we feel the need to adjust it? Right? Feeling cute. We're going to praise him without hymns. Right? Like, like Bill Gaither, uh, you know, was not more ordained than elevation worship. Okay? Uh, most worship songs and hymns are based off of scripture. And I'll be honest, I'm one of those. I like both. Right? I spent a large majority of my childhood watching Gaither videos with my grandparents. I love them. Uh, I know a lot of the songs by heart. Uh, I can be that fifth part of the four-part harmony, uh, high or low. It's really a talent of mine. Um, I'm kidding, but uh, like I enjoy all music, right? So it's, we look at things like this and we make big deals about them, but are they eternally important? Are they eternally important? And sometimes the answer to that question when it comes to custom and when it comes to tradition is yes, they are. We should do things the way that they have always been done because that's what we find in the word of God. And that's what we find from Christ himself. The biggest issue to me is what's our motivation? What's our motivation? Is our motivation God? Is it to show people who God really is? To teach them about the real, gracious, loving, righteous, sometimes angry, justice seeker of a God that we serve? Or again, is it just kind of making things more comfortable for everybody so we can, you know, have our cake and eat it too? So Christ's trip to Jerusalem was customary, but when he got to the temple, what he found was anything but. Okay, when he got to the temple, what he found was anything but. Let's start in verse 14, go through 16. It says, In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, great craftsmanship, Jesus, and drove all from the temple courts. 
both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Well, my goodness, have they turned their back on tradition, right? Have they turned their back on tradition? Uh, They certainly were unique. They were different. But what exactly was it that they were offering their community? So old school temple in Jerusalem, right? Uh, The temple would have like these fancy gates and behind the gates would be this large courtyard area, right? And it would be decorated various ways, Uh, but just a large kind of gathering place for the community and for leaders and for people in the town. And then like beyond that was the actual temple building where you would go and worship and meet Jesus, right? So when Jesus comes, he gets into that courtyard, all of it considered the temple, and he just sees all of this money changing going on and people selling goods and, and, and marketing these animals that they had to sell, and he doesn't like it. What about it does he not like, right? So what, are, what is this temple? What are they offering their community? Well, the first thing they were offering uh, was a place to purchase goods. Come, purchase cattle, purchase goats, be able to feed yourselves. These are pilgrims that have traveled a long way. They're following this custom. And so the church is saying, oh, we're helping, right? We're helping the pilgrims. We're, we're giving them food. We're allowing them to provide for themselves. And custom back in that day is to help support the temple. When you made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would pay your temple dues, right? Your temple tax, however you want to look at it. But it, it was customary for, I think it's half a shekel, half a shekel, maybe. Yeah, half a shekel, I believe, was the temple due. Like, so you'd come and you'd, you'd give your half a shekel when you made your pilgrimage, and that would be kind of like your yearly support. Um, I saw somewhere this week that it would be like 150,000 US dollars today. So like how much they would collect altogether. And that was customary, but people are coming from all different regions and they're, uh, they're coming and they're, they, they don't have the coin of Jerusalem, right? So they have these uh, money exchangers where you can get your exchange rate. You give us yours, we'll give you yours. Sounds like it's a great service. But here's the thing, they were, they, they, they were charging this large like uh, tax, right? This inflated tax. So it's, hey, you can get your exchange rate, but you're going to have to pay us like 21% on top of that. And so they pocket some of that, and maybe they put some back in the temple, but mostly they're pocketing it. And it wasn't, again, it was marketed as, hey, we're helping these pilgrims. They're coming. They've got these dues to pay, and we're trying to serve our community so well. But money was being exchanged. And as you all know, sometimes when money gets exchanged, things get corrupted, right? People like money. I like money. I like money. There are times in my life where I have had some opportunities, you know, you find a wallet and it's got cash in it and you're like, <laughs> right? I, I didn't do it at a certain, there was a point when I was younger, I did do it, but as I got older, I didn't do it, right? Sometimes like uh, I was at a bowling alley once and somebody had just paid and like I go up there to pay and there's like a $20 bill on the ground. I'm like, hey, finders keepers, right? It's what you want to do, but it's money, it's green, it's pretty, it smells nice, it buys you things, like you like it, so you want to keep it. But it wasn't theirs to keep. And so, you know, you put it back on the counter and say, hey, I just found this 20. And that guy's like, yeah, idiot, and puts it in his pocket. Uh, And so then you feel really good about yourself uh, because no one's coming back with their $20 bill. But anyways, there was corruption. There was corruption. It was marketed as, hey, we're trying to, we're trying to help these pilgrims in their pilgrimage uh, do the things they need to do in order to worship God, in order to, to be here for Passover, in order to participate in our customs and look at the services and the goods that we're providing our community. But were they really showing others God? Were they really 
bringing others into the temple for a time of worship? Was their motivation pure? Money corrupts people. And what happened is they got so corrupt that they lost the focus of why the temple existed at all. Why the temple existed at all. Here's the thing. Church isn't about what we have to offer, but what God has to offer. I'm going to say that again. Church isn't about what we have to offer, but what God has to offer. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like providing donuts is sinful. Okay. I'm not saying that having all these different programs and a certain style of worship and, and, and uh, a dynamic speaker, not putting myself in that category, but I'm just saying like, I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves. I'm just saying, what's the motivation behind them? Why are we doing things? What's the purpose of the iPad giveaway? Right? Again, not trashing any church that does that. That's not what this is about. What I want us as Crosspoint to focus on is our heart. What motivates us to do what it is that we're doing? An iPad giveaway can be a great thing. It can get people inside of the doors of a church that never otherwise would have entered. That's real. And there, a seed is planted. They get to hear the gospel. Maybe their lives are changed. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing on it, okay? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, what is our motivation become? Is it about doing all the things? It looks good. We're doing all the things. Or is it about making people have an opportunity to meet Jesus? And if that's the motivation, then do all the things. Do all the things. Have the shiny lights. Do the smoke machine. Have the bells and whistles. Do the great programs. Provide the donuts and the coffee. Do it all as long as we are offering God and not just the bells and the whistles. When we lose focus of the truth that the reason that church exists is to offer the world God, we create a bunch of believers whose focus isn't on God, but on consumption. I want to consume. I am a consumer. I go to this church because I like it because they have coffee and they have the donuts and I got an iPad there once. And at Christmas, I was just sitting and they gave me an instant pot, right? Or like just all the things. I'm just saying like people focus on, I go to this church because it's so easy for me. I can sit in this church. I can tithe a little bit or put a 20 in the offering plate. I can feel really good about it. I don't really have to serve. I don't have to do anything extra. I get to experience God and that's phenomenal. And then I just go home and everything's great, and I'm consuming. But then something goes wrong. The coffee's burnt a couple Sundays in a row. The donuts were stale. My iPad broke. And what happens? They look for somewhere else to consume. That's why we have a generation of church hoppers. And a lot of them, frankly, are about my age. Darn those millennials, Right? We hop and hop and hop and hop. We're good here. It got bad. I'm not going to stay to fix it. I'm not going to work on it. I'm not going to try to improve things. I'm just going to go somewhere else where I can easily do the things I was doing here once. And I'll be happy there for a while, but hey, when things get bad, they don't call me when I want them to call me. Uh, they didn't give me cookies. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. I'm gone. And I'll go find another church that will do these things until they don't. And we live in the Bible Belt, especially here. So hey, American Christianity, you don't like this flavor, try the other. They've got chocolate chips, right? 
That's what we don't want. We become so interested on consuming a product that we don't focus on fixing what's wrong with the church. And it's really bad because our focus is never on God in the first place. Verse 17, it says that after Jesus did these things, he's flipping the tables and he's yelling and he's doing the whip and it's all the stuff looking like a hibachi chef. (laughs) Sorry, Lord. (sighs) His disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. Ultimately, this leads to his death. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the end. The beginning of his ministry and the beginning of his ministry was the start, the stroll to his death. But here's what Jesus knew and here's what we as American Christians really have got to get better at. It's better to die because of the truth than to live for the fanfare. It's better to die because of the truth than to live for the fanfare. You see, the gospel is, was, is sufficient. It's sufficient. The gospel is all we need. We don't need to redress it. We don't need to reword it. We certainly don't need to make it easier to swallow because it is truth. Because it is truth. Here's the gospel in three verses. You ready? You want to know how to share the gospel? This is how you do it. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's it. That's what we need to push. That's what we need to peddle. That's what needs to go in our Facebook posts. That's it. That's what people need to know. We are all sinners. Whether you're in this building, in another church building, or outside of this building, we are all sinners. We're imperfect. We mess up. We screw up. We sin. We sin. The punishment for that sin is death. That is what we rightfully deserve. But there is a God. There is a God who is gracious, gracious enough to give his son to die on a cross so that we might find forgiveness of those sins. And when we put our faith in him, when we trust in him, our sins are forgiven. That's the story. That's it. That is why we do this. I'll be real honest. I believe in Crosspoint. I've said this before. I believe that that is what we are doing with my whole heart. If it ever gets to a point where I feel like we're not, I'll be gone. It's not a threat. It's not a threat. But if we get to that point, I have misguided you as a church and as a people somewhere along the way. And you need someone else who's going to tell you that guy was an idiot. Fix it. But that, those three verses, that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. That's why Jesus came to walk on this earth. That's why John wrote what he wrote. So that people might know those things. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now and I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, for the truth that exists within it. God, sometimes it's not an easy pill to swallow. Sometimes it is extremely difficult. 
to see scripture speak against our lives or the lives of someone we love. And it would be really easy for us to say, we're just going to change it. We're going to make it more palatable. We're going to say that was written for a certain time by certain crotchety old men who just were bigots and didn't love like Jesus loved. But God, we have a responsibility to show the world the truth, to be beacons of truth, to stand by what scripture says and to push that out into the world around us. Jesus is love. He does love. Love so much, in fact, that he chose to die on a cross. He chose an excruciating, humiliating death so that we might experience life that we would not have because of our sin. God, the truth is on our side and the gospel is all we need. It is all we need. Help us as people to place our faith in you, to understand that, to know that, to build a foundation upon it, and then to share that truth with the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'm going to stand back underneath that television. If you need somebody to pray, actually, I'm going to have Allie stand back. She's already there. She's like 12 months pregnant and struggling to walk. I only say that because I love her and she knows it. But Allie's going to be back there into that television. I'll go straight back uh, that way. Um, I need someone else. Volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Uh, Jerrica, you got, oh, Mike. Yeah, Mike, Mike, I'm going to have you go back underneath that television. So you got three options. If you need to pray with somebody today, go pray with somebody. It doesn't have to be me. I won't get my feelings hurt, but I do want to make sure that you have that opportunity because there is power in prayer. I know that. I've been taught that in my life by very important people to me. Prayer works. And so if you're struggling with something today, if you've got somebody else in your life that's struggling with someone today, let's take it to the Lord together. Let's take it to the Lord together together. Don't, don't bear that burden alone. If you need to talk to me about what I just said at the end there, the gospel, that's maybe the first time you've heard that. I don't know. I mean, you, most of us have all been in church. I recognize everyone here, but maybe it hit a different way for you. Maybe you saw it in a new light. Maybe you just want to have a discussion about what I said. Let's do that. Let's have that discussion today. That is of ultimate importance. Otherwise, right now, stand, worship, pray, meditate, This time is yours to reflect on what was just brought from the Word and to praise God for all that He has done.